information. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your host. For the next hour, we'll be talking about everything to do with the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and how to get rid of bad habits. Along the way, we'll be trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, and to better educate the general public about mental health issues. And all of that delivered to you with more than 20 years of experience in psychiatry without the hype and distortion of other media sources. And welcome back to the latest podcast of Psychiatry Today, this one pre-recorded for first being aired on Wednesday evening, December the 2nd, 2015. Hope since I was last with you that you had a happy Thanksgiving holiday and didn't overindulge. And if you did, no sense in feeling guilty about it. Just get back to your previous diet and exercise regimen without dwelling on how much you overdid it during the holiday. Uh, That is your best approach to limiting the damage. Well, to start off tonight's podcast, since it is several weeks now after we turned the clocks back and no longer in daylight savings time, uh, a lot of people are suffering mood changes with the shorter days and less sunlight. Of course, those people who suffer from seasonal affective disorder or SAD, the acronym for that, uh, notice that in the winter, in the fall and winter, their mood is lower than in the spring and summer. And it's like that every year. And of course, it's worse at the more northern latitudes, further away from the equator you are. And light therapy has been known to be a good treatment for SAD for many years now. And uh, light boxes that are specifically used to treat SAD uh, are for sale. You can't get something like this in a store, folks. Sorry, don't go to Lowe's or Home Depot looking for that. And if they advertise themselves as such, buyer beware. There are specialty places that sell these type of lights. Uh, Northern Technologies uh, being one in particular that comes to mind. But I found this article that uh, about some research that shows that light therapy might help with depression regardless of wintertime or not. Uh, Up until now, light therapy has only been thought of as something to help counteract the winter blues, uh, the seasonal affective disorder, but uh, what if it could be the case that light would treat depression regardless of the season or time of year? Uh, Light therapy long used to help improve mood in people who get the blues when days are darker and shorter, can also treat non-seasonal depression, according to a small Canadian study. Depression, which is one of the most common mental health disorders and a leading cause of disability and reduced quality of life worldwide, uh, this researcher's study on light therapy to treat it was published in a recent issue of Journal of the American Medical Association, 
psychiatry. While many people with depression may be helped by medication or psychotherapy, these options don't work for everybody, and some patients don't stick with treatment due to side effects or challenges related to access or affordability. And affordability is certainly a major issue since, unfortunately, it's not covered well under a lot of insurance plans, even with the Affordable Care Act. <clears throat> the researchers feel that this study is the first one to show that light therapy alone is effective, and they studied it head-to-head -head against a placebo, and they say it's also the first study to compare combination of light therapy and medication to light therapy alone. Now, what they found was the combination of light therapy and taking a prescription antidepressant was the most effective. But some people may prefer to try a non-medication treatment first and may elect to start with light therapy. To test the effectiveness of light therapy for non-seasonal depression, researchers randomly assigned 122 patients to one of four groups for eight weeks. Only medication, only light therapy, a combination of medications and light therapy, or a control group that received no active treatments. The active treatments in the study included a 20 milligram dose of Prozac, that's the lowest dose by the way, and daily exposure to a fluorescent light box for 30 minutes after waking up each morning. Researchers gave people assigned only light therapy, a placebo or an inactive pill, and they provided participants assigned only to drug treatment with an inactive device instead of a working light box. The control group received both the placebo pill and the inactive device. So what they did was they figured out a placebo for the light box. Now at the start of the study, researchers used a standard questionnaire to assess the severity of depression by asking participants about sadness, inner tension, reduced sleep, reduced appetite, concentration difficulties, lack of energy, inability to feel, and pessimistic or suicidal thoughts. The highest score is 60, indicating the most severe depression. On average, participants had scores of about 26 or 27 at the start of the study, pointing to moderate depression. After eight weeks, the group receiving both medication and light therapy had the biggest drop biggest average drop in depression scores with a 16.9 point decline. That is extremely robust uh, as results like this in research studies go. People who got only light therapy had an average 13.4 point decline in depression scores, still quite robust, while people who had only medication experienced an 8.8 .8 drop, and the control group getting only inactive treatments had a 6.5 point decrease. Now, this is a pretty strong indictment against medication uh, because 
medication alone uh, wasn't a whole lot better than the inactive treatment group. I mean, uh, that certainly indicates that the light therapy made a big difference. Now, while the exact reason light therapy might ease depression is unknown, it may have worked by helping to reset the biological clock in the brain, or circadian rhythms. Normally, if an antidepressant doesn't work in a low dose, clinicians will gradually increase the dose to help achieve the right amount of medicine to ease symptoms. Light treatment could be an adequate agent that, in combination with medications, may make the response to treatment more complete. But patients should not buy a light treatment device and start adding it to their antidepressants on their own. The best time in the course of treatment to consider light therapy may also depend on the severity of symptoms. If someone has more mild depression, they might want to try light therapy first. But if they have more moderate or serious severe depression, medication might be recommended instead and then consider adding on light therapy. Well, I echo the comments of the authors. It's not a good idea for anyone to just decide on their own without a doctor's consultation to just say, well, you know, light boxes are good for your mood. I'm going to go buy myself one. Uh, I can think of one very prominent example in which this can be extremely detrimental, and that is if someone has bipolar disorder uh, and you start that patient starts using light therapy, that can elevate their mood so much that they become manic, um, which just goes to show you how effective light therapy is in terms of raising mood. Uh, anybody who has bipolar disorder should not be on any antidepressant treatment, ideally, uh, because anything that's something that treats depression will elevate the mood. And if you do that in someone who's prone to highs and lows in the first place, you risk flipping them from a low into a high and making them cycle up and down between high and low much more rapidly. Uh, but beyond that, <clears throat> it's uh, not good for someone to self-diagnose or treat themselves with the light box uh, because they might have serious enough depression to where they should also have antidepressant medication, not just uh, light therapy. Still, very interesting to note that light therapy can help depression even without uh, the seasonal changes uh, that accompany winter depression. All right, next up on tonight's podcast, uh, regular and longtime listeners will know that I frequently talk about research into omega-3 fatty acids and their uh, benefits <clears throat> in psychiatry and treating mental illness. And of course, it's somewhat of a controversial issue because not all of the studies show the benefits of omega-3s. And in fact, I talked about this on a very recent podcast 
but I found yet another article uh, about it. And this time, researchers found that in patients with bipolar disorder, they measured the levels of omega-3 fatty acids in the body, in these patients. And lo and behold, they were found to be lower than normal. And, you know, when you think about that, in the context of it being a well-known phenomenon that in countries that consume the most fish, they have the lowest levels of bipolar depression per capita. You know, this may be the reason why. Um, you know, in bipolar disorder, if you inherently have lower levels of omega-3s, then it makes sense that the places that have more of them in their diet are going to have less bipolar symptoms. We'll go over that and have more mental health related news when we come back from our first commercial break you're listening to psychiatry today with dr scott be right back affordable health insurance was the promise of obamacare but for many the government mandate caused more problems than it solved this is dr elena george from medicine on call and i want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under obamacare liberty healthshare liberty healthshare bypasses doctor and hospital panels giving you the freedom to choose and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, Visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And we're talking about how some researchers have found some interesting things about the levels of omega-3 fatty acids in patients with bipolar disorder. People with bipolar disorder have lower levels of certain omega-3 fatty acids that cross the blood-brain barrier compared to those omega-3 fatty acids that don't. This according to researchers from Penn State College of Medicine and the National Institutes of Health. This finding could have implications for dietary interventions for bipolar disorder. Fatty acids are a major area of interest in bipolar disorder and depression, 
because of their biological importance in the brain. Studies have shown that fatty acid supplementation may be useful for, well, the article says for unipolar depression, but the data has been more mixed for bipolar disorder. I have to think that must be a typo. Uh, it's been shown for many years that uh, there is a strong association with omega-3 fatty acids helping with bipolar depression, and the results for unipolar uh, or non-bipolar depression are mixed. So I think that was just a, a mix-up on who wrote the article's part. In any case, what these researchers did was they compared the fatty acids in 27 people who have bipolar disorder and were symptomatic uh, versus 31 healthy control subjects. They measured levels of different forms of the polyunsaturated fatty acids omega-3 and omega-6. They also collected self-reported information on fatty acid consumption and bipolar medication use. And right off the bat, you have to admit that the self-report not as accurate as if the subjects were observed, but uh, of course that would make for a very much more expensive study. Uh, the results were published in the journal Bipolar Disorders. Free fatty acids are able to cross the blood-brain barrier, while fatty acids bound to proteins are not. In study subjects with bipolar disorder, the ratio of a free circulating omega-3 fatty acid called EPA to protein-bound EPA was lower than in other people. This means that the availability of omega-3 in the body is lower in these bipolar disorder subjects. Omega-3 fatty acids are a large component of brain cell membranes and are important for cell-to-cell -cell communication in the brain. In the study, the ratio of free to bound EPA correlated with clinical bipolar symptoms, specifically mania and tendency towards suicide. Fatty acids also play an important role in the immune system and the inflammatory system. Omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids can shift the balance of inflammation, which we think is important in bipolar disorder. However, the researchers did not find altered ratios of omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acids in bipolar subjects. Although the researchers did find lower levels of omega-3s, in patients with bipolar disorder that correlated with symptoms, it's too early to advise dietary changes or omega-3 supplementation, at least according to the researchers. Uh, I would argue that while it's not a sure thing, there's enough evidence to, to suggest that it may help, and at the very least, uh, as long as it's not overdone, certainly could not do any harm. Omega-3 fatty acids are abundant in fish, vegetable oils, nuts, especially walnuts, also flax seeds, flaxseed oil, and leafy vegetables. There was no difference in self-reported fatty acid consumption between bipolar and healthy patients. 
Now, is it because they only included certain foods in the survey? Or is it because people couldn't accurately recall what they were eating? Another possibility the researchers are considering is that there are differences in how healthy people and people with bipolar disorder convert fatty acids from one form to another. Drugs that treat bipolar disorder are known to affect these conversions, but no association was found between fatty acid levels or ratios and self-reported medication use in the study. Scientists are currently investigating if modifications in dietary intake of fatty acids could be useful in bipolar disorder and are actively pursuing the next step in this line of inquiry to get to the point where they know what changes in diets are going to help people with bipolar disorder so they can have another option beyond the medications that are currently available. A number of trials have turned up no benefit of omega-3 supplementation in bipolar disorder, a brain disorder that causes manic episodes of elevated mood and energy and cognition, as well as major depressive episodes of lowered mood, energy, and cognition. Bipolar disorder affects between 1 and 4.4% of the population. Most research on fatty acids in bipolar disorder measures levels of fatty acids in cell membranes. This research group instead looked at circulating fatty acids in the blood, which is a better indication of dietary intake. Fatty acids in the blood are also the type that cross the blood-brain barrier in order to enter the brain. <clears throat> well, there you have it. I think uh, this, again, is an argument for taking omega-3 fatty acids, especially with the EPA fraction, and uh, just, in my opinion, more evidence that it may help with mood disorders, especially with bipolar disorder. And, uh, you know, now we know why. In, that it may be there's something inherently uh, deficient about how people with bipolar disorder metabolize uh, fatty acids. So that's why the supplementation may preferentially help them. And again, as I referenced before the last, before the commercial break, it also may explain uh, why populations who eat more fish have lower levels of bipolar depression. <clears throat> Next, let's take a look at yet another article showing that mindfulness meditation is not just some fringe new age faux treatment. It is very real. And yet another article about using mindfulness meditation uh, as a legitimate medical treatment has been published in a scholarly, peer-reviewed, respected journal. Um, <clears throat> and the study was done by scientists at the Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center who have found evidence that mindfulness meditation trumps placebo in terms of pain reduction. That's right. Mindfulness meditation 
reduces pain more effectively than a placebo. Now this is significant because as we know in any research study trying to find if a treatment is effective for any disorder, a placebo-controlled trial is the gold standard for demonstrating the effectiveness of any clinical and especially pharmacological type treatment. Now this research was published in the November 11 issue of the Journal of Neuroscience and it showed that study participants who practiced mindfulness meditation reported greater pain relief than from an inert placebo. Significantly brain scans showed that mindfulness meditation produced very different patterns of activity than those produced by placebo to reduce pain. They were completely surprised by the findings. While they thought that there would be some overlap in brain regions between the mindfulness meditation and placebo, the findings from this study provide novel and objective evidence that mindfulness meditation reduces pain in a unique fashion. The study used a two-pronged approach, pain ratings and brain imaging, to determine whether mindfulness meditation is merely a placebo effect. 75 healthy, pain-free participants were randomly assigned to one of four groups, mindfulness meditation, placebo meditation or sham meditation, placebo analgesic cream, which was just petroleum jelly, or uh, a control group. Now, the pain was induced by using a thermal probe to heat a small area of the participant's skin to 49 degrees centigrade or 120.2 degrees Fahrenheit, a level of heat most people find very painful. Now, uh, before those of you uh, just utterly a revolt uh, against my reporting this because of the somewhat sadistic-sounding nature of this, uh, I assure you that it had to pass muster extensively with many, many different regulatory bodies to make sure that uh, it held up as far as ethical um, and not something akin to torture. And uh, this certainly would not bring about any level of a burn, just enough to feel the heat that was painful. The study participants were asked to rate their pain intensity according to the physical sensation, and also they were asked to rate pain unpleasantness, uh, which is an emotional response. And then they scanned the participants' brains with uh, something called arterial spin labeling magnetic resonance imaging, or ASL-MRI, before and after their respective four-day group interventions. The mindfulness meditation group reported that the pain intensity was reduced by 27% and by 44% for the emotional aspect of pain, whereas the placebo cream reduced the sensation of pain only by 11% and the emotional aspect only by 13%, showing a big difference with mindfulness meditation. 
We'll continue to look at the results of the study when we come back from this commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about how some researchers found that mindfulness meditation helped to reduce the sensation of pain and the unpleasantness of pain better than did placebos. Now, the MRI scans of the research subjects showed for the first time that mindfulness meditation produced patterns of brain activity that are different than those produced by this placebo analgesic cream that the subjects were given. Mindfulness meditation reduced pain by activating brain regions associated with the self-control of pain. And these regions are the orbital frontal and anterior cingulate cortex while the placebo analgesic cream lowered pain by reducing brain activity in pain processing areas. That's the secondary somatosensory cortex. Uh, however, as we talked about right before the break, the extent to which the placebo cream lowered pain was much less than it was when uh, they looked at the effect of mindfulness meditation. Another brain region, the thalamus, was deactivated during mindfulness meditation, but was activated during all other conditions. This brain region serves as a gateway that determines 
if sensory information is allowed to reach higher brain centers, by deactivating this area, mindfulness meditation may have caused signals about pain to simply fade away. When I first read this article and read that point, I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that, that really blew me away. That mindfulness meditation alone could deactivate the thalamus. The thalamus is a major brain relay center for all types of sensory information. Uh, and if that doesn't show that mindfulness meditation is the real thing and convince naysayers who would dismiss it as just some sort of new age fringe uh, faddish type thing, I don't know what else would do it. That really is incredible. And of course it would make sense if you've deactivated the thalamus, the major, major relay network in the brain for all kinds of sensory information, including pain, of course it would be an effective treatment for reducing pain. Now mindfulness meditation also was significantly better at reducing the pain intensity and pain unpleasantness than the placebo meditation. The placebo meditation group had relatively small decreases in pain intensity, 9%, and if you recall the placebo analgesic cream was 11%, so about the same. And uh, it reduced the pain unpleasantness by 24%, uh, which is much better than the analgesic uh, placebo cream of 13%, but still pales compared to the mindfulness meditation, which reduced that by 44%. So the study findings suggest that the placebo meditation may have reduced pain through just a simple relaxation effect that was associated with slower breathing. Well, uh, with good reason, the authors show, uh, or rather uh, state that their study is the first to show that mindfulness meditation is very distinct and produces pain relief above and beyond the analgesic effects seen with either placebo cream or with this placebo or sham meditation. Based on their findings, the scientists believe that as little as four 20-minute daily sessions of mindfulness meditation could enhance pain treatment in a clinical setting. However, given that the present study examined healthy, pain-free volunteers who had this very uh, artificial intervention to induce pain, uh, they cannot generalize their findings to chronic pain patients at this time. Wouldn't it be exciting, however, if you were to take a population of chronic pain patients who were either doomed to be maintained on powerful and addictive opioid analgesics with all their side effects such as cognitive function, uh, dis cognitive dysfunction rather, constipation and sometimes even depression, uh, or chronic pain patients who become drug addicts and go beyond prescription opioids and uh, move on to things like heroin, uh, what if mindfulness meditation were able to help even just a portion of these folks? Uh, it, it would be 
a revolution, really, in the treatment of chronic pain. Uh, so hopefully that will be studied. <clears throat> I do want to comment, though. I mean, it, what they describe makes it seem like it would take quite a commitment for the patient to make this work. They, they say as little as four 20-minute daily sessions of mindfulness meditation. That may sound like not that much to them, uh, but <clears throat> the commitment to do that four times a day, I personally think uh, unless someone is that motivated by being in so much pain, I think that'd be difficult. Um, <clears throat> you know, perhaps uh, shorter sessions uh, would also be beneficial. The other thing is that not everybody is able to become adept or proficient at mindfulness meditation. Uh, it takes practice. It's something that can be learned and practiced and taught. Uh, and it takes a while to be able to get into that state and uh, just very relaxed and letting your thoughts uh, come to you and uh, not uh, trying to counteract any thoughts and just being in the moment, as it were, uh, comes easier to some people than others. Uh, again, though, very important research and uh, very impressive findings, uh, not only using subjective measures of pain unpleasantness, but uh, also looking at brain imaging to see uh, how the brain is responding to the pain signals. All right, next up on psychiatry today, let's take another look at a subject we've visited in the recent past, how inflammation is linked to weakened reward circuits in depression. We've talked on the podcast before about states of inflammation and how they relate to depression. <clears throat> Brain imaging shows distinctive aspects of this high inflammation type of depression. About one-third of people with depression have high levels of inflammation markers in their blood. And uh, the main one of these, of course, is the C-reactive protein, or CRP. New research indicates that persistent inflammation affects the brain in ways that are connected with stubborn symptoms of depression, such as anhedonia, which is the inability to experience pleasure. <clears throat> this study that we're talking about was published online on November the 10th in the journal Molecular Psychiatry. The findings bolster the case that high inflammation form of depression is a distinct form of it, and they are guiding researchers' plans to test treatments tailored for it. Anhedonia, again, the lack of ability to experience pleasure, is a core symptom of depression that is particularly difficult to treat. Many patients who are taking antidepressants continue to suffer from it. Data suggest that by blocking inflammation or inflammation's effects on the brain, researchers may be able to reverse this anhedonia symptom and may help depressed individuals who fail to respond to antidepressants. 
In a study of 48 patients with depression, high levels of the inflammatory marker CRP, or as I said before, that stands for C-reactive protein, were linked with a failure to communicate, seen through brain imaging, between regions of the brain important for motivation and reward. <clears throat> so they're seeing that if you have high levels of inflammation, there's a disconnect in the normal pathways that subsume uh, the feelings of motivation and reward. Neuroscientists can infer that these two regions of the brain talk to each other by watching whether they light up in magnetic resonance imaging scans at the same times or in the same patterns, even when someone is not doing anything in particular. They describe this as functional connectivity. In patients with high CRP levels, researchers observed a lack of connectivity between the ventromedial prefrontal cortex and the ventral striatum. In contrast, patients with low CRP levels had robust connectivity between these areas. And the researchers were interested in these regions of the brain because of their known importance for response to reward. In addition, they had seen reduced activation of these areas in people receiving immunostimulatory treatments for hepatitis C or cancer, which suggested that they may be sensitive to inflammation. <clears throat> High CRP levels were also correlated with patients' reports of anhedonia, uh, low connectivity between another region of the striatum and the ventromedial prefrontal cortex was linked to a different depression symptom, and that was slow motor function. They measured this by measuring finger tapping speed. During the brain imaging portion of the study, participants were not taking antidepressants, anti-inflammatory drugs, or other medications for at least four weeks, and CRP was measured on repeat visits to make sure its levels were stable. High CRP was also correlated with body mass index, in other words, with higher uh, body mass index, higher CRP, but the statistical relationship was strong even after the scientists corrected for body mass index and other variables such as age. Well, we're going to take another commercial break here. We'll finish up our thoughts of the study and have more mental health-related news after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key. 
and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. And we're talking about research showing that inflammation is linked to weakened communication between reward circuits in the brain in patients with depression. A previous study of people with difficult-to-treat depression found that those with higher levels of inflammation, as measured by C-reactive protein, but not other participants, improved in response to the anti-inflammatory antibody infliximab. That was an intravenous uh, infusion of infliximab, and that was actually done here in Atlanta at Emory University. Now, as a next step to this current study that we're talking about, which um, also uh, was uh, done at Emory University, by the way, they are planning to test whether L-DOPA, a medication that targets the brain chemical dopamine, can increase connectivity in these reward-related brain regions in patients with high inflammation depression. That study is uh, coming soon, and if I see any articles about the findings, you can be sure I'll bring that to you. Uh, Previous research in non-human primates suggests that inflammation leads to reduced dopamine release. L-DOPA is a precursor for dopamine, and it is a mainstay of treatment for patients with Parkinson's disease who have deficiencies of dopamine in other areas of the brain that are more involved in movement as opposed to mood. Uh, so <clears throat> the researchers hope their investigations may, need to, may lead to new therapies to treat uh, the anhedonia or lack of ability to feel pleasure in patients with depression who also have high levels of inflammation. Well, I have another article here that is related to mood-type symptoms or emotional functioning and the immune system. 
This one is research that found that loneliness triggers cellular changes that can cause illness. Loneliness is more than a feeling. For older adults especially, perceived social isolation is a major health risk that can increase the risk of premature death by 14%. Researchers have long known the dangers of loneliness, but the cellular mechanisms by which loneliness causes adverse health outcomes have not been well understood. Now a team of researchers has released a study shedding new light on how loneliness triggers physiological responses that can ultimately make us sick. The paper appears in the November 23rd issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences shows that loneliness leads to fight-or-flight stress signaling, which can ultimately affect the production of white blood cells. The study examined loneliness in both humans and rhesus macaques monkeys, which is a highly social primate species. Previous research from this same group had identified a link between loneliness and a phenomenon they called conserved transcriptional response to adversity, or CTRA. This response is characterized by an increased expression of genes involved in inflammation and a decreased expression of genes involved in antiviral responses. Essentially, lonely people had a less effective immune response and more inflammation than non-lonely people. For this current study, researchers examined gene expression in leukocytes. These are cells of the immune system that are involved in protecting the body against bacteria and viruses. They're a type of white blood cell. As expected, the leukocytes of lonely humans and macaques showed the effects of CTRA, an increased expression of genes involved in inflammation and a decreased expression of genes involved in antiviral responses. But the study also revealed several important new pieces of information about loneliness's effect on the body. First, the researchers found that loneliness predicted future CTRA gene expression measured a year or more later. Interestingly, CTRA gene expression also predicted loneliness measured a year or more later. Leukocyte gene expression and loneliness appear to have a reciprocal relationship, suggesting that each can help propagate the other over time. These results were specific to loneliness and could not be explained by depression, stress, or social support. Next, the team investigated the cellular processes linking social experience to CTRA gene expression in rhesus macaque monkeys, and this was at the California National Primate Research Center, which had been behaviorally classified as high in perceived social isolation. Like the lonely humans, 
the lonely-like monkeys showed higher CTRA activity. They also showed higher levels of the fight-or-flight neurotransmitter norepinephrine, otherwise known as noradrenaline. Previous research has shown that norepinephrine can stimulate blood stem cells in bone marrow to make a more particular kind of immune cell, an immature monocyte, that's another type of white blood cell, that shows high levels of inflammatory gene expression and low levels of antiviral gene expression. Both lonely humans and lonely-like monkeys showed higher levels of monocytes in their blood. More detailed studies of the monkey white blood cells found that this difference stemmed from expansion of the pool of immature monocytes. In an additional study, monkeys repeatedly exposed to mildly stressful social conditions also showed increases in immature monocyte levels. These analyses have finally identified one reason why CTRA gene expression is amplified in the white blood cell pool. It's this increased output of immature monocytes, which again are tied to high inflammatory gene expression. Finally, the researchers determined that this monocyte-related CTRA shift had real consequences for health. In a mo <clears throat> monkey model of viral infection, the impaired antiviral gene expression in the lonely-like monkeys allowed simian immunodeficiency virus, that's the monkey version of HIV, to grow faster in the blood and in the brain. Taken together, these findings support a model in which loneliness results in fight-or-flight stress signaling, which increases the production of immature monocytes, leading to increase in inflammatory genes and impaired antiviral responses. The danger signals activated in the brain by loneliness ultimately affect the production of white blood cells. The resulting shift in monocyte output may both propagate loneliness and contribute to its associated health risks. The researchers plan to continue looking at how loneliness leads to poor health outcomes and how these effects can be prevented in older adults. So, Admittedly, a lot of technical things in this article, but the bottom line is loneliness itself is associated with higher levels of inflammation and impaired immune responses. And I found this particularly interesting because a study done many decades ago looked at uh, bereavement in particular, not just ordinary depression, but specifically at bereavement, researchers took a look at uh, a bunch of people who had recently lost their spouse, and uh, they did some measurements regarding certain characteristics of their white blood cells, and uh, they found that these bereaved patients had impaired white blood cell function. Uh, so again, it, this kind of ties together with that. Uh, we know that... Uh, you know, negative emotions and negative emotional states 
can definitely have a negative effect on the immune system. And it goes back the other way too. All right. Well, that was certainly interesting. Let's see if I can find something to tell you about before we have to wrap up tonight's show. All right. Here's a quick but interesting little item on end-of-life dreams, a little-known and little-discussed issue. They, they, in fact, are comforting. It's not uncommon for people to have extraordinary dreams or visions in the final weeks of their lives. A recent study in the Journal of Palliative Medicine found that end-of-life dreams and visions are an intrinsic and comforting part of the dying process. 66 patients in the study were receiving end-of-life care. Researchers interviewed the patients daily about the content, frequency, and comfort level of their end-of-life dreams and visions. This is the first study to interview patients about these experiences in the last weeks of life. Previous studies were limited to retrospective information from clinicians or family members, and they found the most common dreams and visions were of deceased relatives or friends which were significantly more comforting than other types of these dreams and visions and became more frequent as the person approached death. The study noted that some medical professionals tend to discount pre-death dreams and visions. If they are seen as delusions or hallucinations, they are treated as problems to be controlled. But there is an important distinction between end-of-life dreams and visions and delirium. During a delirium state, the person has lost their connection to reality and ability to communicate rationally. Delirium is distressing and dangerous and must be treated medically. In contrast, end-of-life dreams and visions are typically comforting, realistic, and often very meaningful, highlighting a critical difference. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. Hope you had a wonderful, stress-free week till the next time we get together. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.